Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, one of the greatest rock and roll stories ever told, the kickoff for what will be a weekend of shows that we are calling Detroit Week here on Turned Out of Punk. Uh, which will feature three different episodes involving three completely different punk scenes, but starting off with a band that saw it from the get-go, Lorne Molinari from the Dogs is on the show today. And my gosh, get ready. This one's going to blow your mind. I promise you. I promise you. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting them all know that you enjoy this podcast that we do multiple times a week that we do things like a like a Detroit weekend you know that we have go-go's on this thing like we have uh you know it's just it's just you know you get the vibe you you know your friends you know which ones would like it which ones would say no thank you so uh you know also you can subscribe to it you can rate it and uh you know um, speaking of support though this thing would not be possible with the kind loving support of all everyone that had us over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk and supports this podcast that way. Thank you to everyone that does do that. And check that out if, you, if you're if you so inclined. Also, this thing would not be possible with the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the costs of doing this thing. And uh, it is very much appreciated. Definitely. Uh, oh, Also, while you're at it, check out Punk as Fuck over there at floodmagazine.com. It is a video series that I did with them a few years ago where I went around Los Angeles and just, just took in the punk sites. It's it's a lot of fun. Went to some cool places, and I think you'll enjoy it. If you like this podcast, you probably enjoy that video series as well. And you know what? You probably also enjoy that new Fucked Up song. Fucked Up has just released another chapter of our ongoing Year of the Horse series. This one is... I think it's like 29 minutes or something. And it features Matt from the national and a bunch of other cool guests. Um, this is one of the best fucked up things we've ever done. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it this whole year, the horse thing. It's, 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 if, you, if you're in, if you're in for this whole thing, it will deliver. I promise you that. All right. Is anything else? No, I think that's it on to today's show today on the show. Lorne from the dogs is here. Now, Many of us first got introduced to the dogs through the compilation series Killed by Death. And what Killed by Death basically was, was a entrepreneuring young punk rocker put together a incredible mixtape of very obscure punk records and press it onto vinyl, which really kicked off a, probably the best way to put it is like a, a completely new way of looking at punk music where you kind of begin to look outside of the canon of, of certain bands that are taken up as being the, you know, the starter pack of punk rock, all the big names and turn the focus onto some of these obscure bands that for whatever reason, never really got outside of their own little regional scenes. And even, even then sometimes when they were really obscure in their regional scenes, like some of these records, whew, I'm still, I'm still searching for some of these records all these years later. Anyway, out of this came, 
awareness of this band, The Dogs, and their song, Slash Your Face, which is really one of the standouts of the whole series. This thing is a monster. I would put this song up. I put this up there with one of my as one of my all-time favorite punk rock songs. Like this thing rages, the lyrics are awesome. Just everything about this thing. This thing it was perfect. And you know, from this I think a little cult around this band began to blossom. But to just <laughs> pigeonhole them and limit them to being a kill by death band is to ignore this insane history and story that this band has where it goes back to like 1968 and, and really just tells the story of underground music in America uh, from proto-punk right up until punk happens. The names you're going to hear in this thing, my jaw was on the floor the whole time he's telling me these stories. This is one, oh man, I'm so excited for you to hear this. Ever since I've recorded this one, I wanted to put this out so I'd have people to talk about this with. Whoosh, get ready. Sit back, relax. Oh, before I get into that, if you can find Dog's music, check it out wherever you can find it. Now, he mentions there are going to be some more reissues coming. I, that's really got to happen because this is a band that deserves more attention because this, this thing's got to be made into a, like a movie. This is one of those stories. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy Lorne Molinari on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Damien. Um, honored to be here. Well, as I was just telling you off air, it is a huge honor to have you here because I, I really look at the dogs as being one of the best rock and roll bands ever. And, uh, you know, and I, I really don't think you come up enough in the conversation of people that really started this thing so if i can contribute in any small part to the to the to the you know improving the leg the uh spread of the legend of the dogs i'm happy to do that but i gotta start this off the way they all start off which is lauren how did you get into punk do you remember the first time you ever heard the word the word punk yeah you know that's so in it's such an interesting question because um when we started playing um, maybe that word punk was out there. Um, I, it was not associated in, in the circles I ran in too far as like a style of music, you know, because mm. uh, growing up in mid-Michigan and Lansing outside of Detroit, you know, um, myself and, 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 the, and the band like Mary on bass and stuff, you know, were totally influenced by the Detroit scene of the, MC5 and the Stooges. And that's kind of where we our roots came from. But it is now what 50 years plus since Kick Out the Jams came out. You know, they're they're like the godfathers of punk rock. So mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't think I really heard the word punk until we had moved to LA like in 75 or you know, 76, started hearing that word punk rock, and people go the dogs are punk rock, you know, and, and um, I, I dug the attitude of, of, of anything goes with punk rock, you know, um, I would, you know, we never really fit into classic rock either, but, um, you know, the whole punk rock thing, I, I related to it and sort of the band of, because we were always rebels anyway, so it was just kind of an extension of what, 
we were always doing anyway, being Detroit rock, you know, in that attitude. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, and like kind of, you know, reading over the years, it seems like Lester Bangs was kind of throwing it around a little bit in, in cream, but it, it really doesn't feel like it kind of becomes part of the vernacular until around 78 in any sort of major way. Yeah. Well, what were the, the guys in New York? I forget their name that had that, the magazine, punk magazine. Legs McNeil and, and yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to remember the other guy's name, but absolutely. Yeah. You know, but um, like when the dogs hit New York in 73, when we, we went there on a, on a fucking whim, <laughs> you know, with six dogs and 13 people and 600 bucks and no place to live. I mean, CBGB's was, I think, a bluegrass place at that point. And, and the whole, the dolls had been happening in the, the glitter rock thing and Harlots of 42nd Street. And, um, you know, Max's was kind of trying to, I don't think had rejuvenated Max's Kansas City at that point. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it wasn't until, you know, we came back in 74 and played with television at Max's. And it, and it really wasn't even called punk rock at that point. You know, I don't yeah. think. No. It was just kind of maybe new wave. I think maybe they called it. I don't know. You know? Yeah, I guess going back before that, like, how did the band come together? Like, you formed in 69, right? Or 68? 68 um, was the very beginnings of it, but really, like in 69, I was a, a junior at, in high school, and uh, my buddy, who I'd been playing with since junior high school, um, you know, we had put a sign up for a bass player, and Mary came to uh, Art Phelps' mom's house basement and walked down, and, you know, we were like, holy shit, I mean, we were like, you know, naive little teenage boys you know and she walks down with a noel redding Jimi hendrix kind of orange perm kind of you know frizzy thing going on and she played like jack bruce and um you know we thought you know she'll never play with us and then she called us back and said she dug it and then the next time she came over she had brought you know, uh, the Stooges, I want to be your dog, 45 on Electra. And we weren't even called the dogs yet. And then when I saw that, I went, we should just call ourselves the dogs because, you know, we were just enamored by everything Detroit like that. And, um, and then I told my mom that we were going to call the band the dogs and she hated it. And, <laughs> and like, is that all you think? what you guys consider yourselves and i go yeah and it's cool and she hated it so i thought we got a good name here because it, it offended her you know and mm -hmm. and then uh we you know started doing high school dances and a lot of frat parties and it wasn't till um 69 that we actually played detroit and um dick wagner from the michigan band the frost who ended up playing with Alice Cooper and Lou Reed brought, brought us down and Mary knew him from early days in Detroit um, when he had this other band, but he brought us down and we, we played our first shows in Detroit. And then we uh, started doing teenage dances, Saturday night dances at 
uh, a Catholic high school that the MC5 Alice Cooper MC5 would play. We'd play with Brownsville Station and the Rationals. And so, you know, we were just uh, getting into it. And in that summer of 69, we got to open for the MC5 when their second album came out at a ballroom north of Lansing. And uh, it was the first time I, I seen the MC5, even though loved and we loved kick out the jams and thought that was like the best thing I'd ever heard. Um, but to witness the power of the MC5 uh, when they did back in the USA was just amazing. And I, and I think that was a turning point for me, how powerful rock and roll could be. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the, the thing that struck me really uh, in a major way, Damien, was um, there was like young hippie chicks there. There were like truck stop kind of white trash hillbilly types and just all sorts of people and they had something that transcended the barriers of just it didn't matter who you were and when the mc5 got on stage you just felt part of the whole scene they made you feel like that and um it was like and it made me really realize how how a powerful rock and roll band could could you know change the world and and change your life you know and um because they were very people like the people's band you know and mm -hmm. quasi -politi political and all that good stuff you know did you have the sound kind of figured out right away like what kind of sound were you playing in, in the early days of the band um very garage rock mm -hmm. um you know, with Vox guitars and Silvertone amps and, you know, digging the Yardbirds and, um, you know, the Kinks and stuff like that, because it was very easy to play. And, um, and, and then when we got exposed to the whole Detroit scene, it, it got jacked up to another level, especially with Marshall amps, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, the Who, I think the Who's first gigs in America was in Ann Arbor, and they were always playing the Grandy Ballroom, and which had, the Who had a huge effect on the MC5 and, and a lot of the bands in Detroit, and um, and I think all the British bands playing the Grandy that the MC5 got to open for, but um, it was quite an electric scene uh you know what 90 miles from toronto there <laughs> yeah know, it was a lot going on in detroit and ann arbor in those days oh it's a, like i've i've become completely obsessed with detroit lately just like obviously you know it starts there with all the bands we're talking about but i think right the way through there's just been sort of this consistent lineage of just awesome bands but like a realness to it like a a, a real sort of like the anti rock star approach to rock and roll like if you could strip that edifice away and just make it like you're saying bands of the people yeah yeah i mean you know uh in, in the city has that but I, I think i think being a factory ish type town drew a lot of people from the south which brought a blues country kind of contingent there which um you know i think help spawn like the Motown sound um, and just the grit of the factories. And, um, you know, just, just, they make cars there and it's noisy and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, people party hard. They like their rock and roll 
hard and tough and loud. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like um, people say, like when Black Sabbath came to America, they liked Detroit because it was kind of like Birmingham, you know, very, (laughs) very dark industrial kind of city and dirty and dingy. So. So what was the first concert you went to, period? Hmm. You know, um, you know, I, I went a lot to YMCA dances in junior high school, but that was like cover bands. Mm-hmm. I think probably the first real concert that uh, kicked my ass was um, probably um, the Amboy Dukes, Ted Nugent, you know? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And then right after that, I saw Bob Seeger's system when Bob was a, you know, a kick-ass rocker playing guitar, kind of looked like Iggy Pop with a Gibson Firebird, and um, and then the Frost with Dick Wagner. That was uh, uh, either that or the Amboy Dukes was the first one. It's, it, I, I think you know, it's it's also like I guess that's the the thing. Like most of that stuff is so obscure. Like I've only ever heard it on compilations, but. There is, you know, in addition to the huge bands, there's like such a vibrant scene of just great garage rock stuff that's kind of churning out like a bunch of 45s kind of seems like all through the 70s and, and, and 60s. Yeah, well, question mark and the Mysterians from Saginaw, Michigan, right? And, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there was the Ramrods and Del Shannon. I mean, if you want to go back to mid 60s, I mean, you know, there was there was quite a quite a cool scene there uh in garage rock land of uh in michigan and you know i mean that whole area chicago detroit cleveland you know you're a stone's throw from cleveland yourself you know it's, mm-hmm. it's that whole midwest kind of you know what are they there used to be a iron triangle or something they would call it you know it's just a lot a lot going on there in that area yeah, I find it's, you know, the place that's most similar to it close to us is Hamilton, you know, and it's also funny because the Hamilton is where punk rock really gets its birth in Canada too, right? Like it's 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 very much an industrial, like hard partying kind of music, like you're saying. Yeah, well, you, there are some, uh, what was that? What what was the, the really uh, teenage? Teenage head? Head. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're like super cool, right? Oh, fantastic band. Absolutely. Yeah. I was going to actually, you brought up Cleveland. How much interaction or if any, did you have with kind of that, the proto-punk stuff that's happening in Cleveland, I guess a few years later, but like, you know, Rockets from the Tombs and Frankenstein and all those kind of bands. Like, were they, like, was that happening at the same time? Like, would you interact with any bands from Cleveland or is it very much like a local scene? Um, w- You know, we played Ohio a few times, but we like uh, in the, in the early seventies, like mm-hmm. um, we played the Toledo sports arena opening for Bob Seeger and got taken to jail uh, on stage in front of 9,000 kids standing up for fucking rock and roll. You know, that is a fucking punk rock move right there. What happened? Felony charges inciting to riot. Well, we had been there all day. Uh, we were billed next to headline next to Bob. And um, we're in our dressing room, our, all our gear was set up on stage and we're getting ready to go on. And 
Bob Seger's road manager came on stage and said, hey, Bob's tired. He wants to he wants to play now and you guys can close the show. And we said, that's not cool because everyone's going to leave after he he plays and we're going to we're going to play at least one song. We're not going to do that. And um, and and him and the promoter, they said, if you guys go on stage, you're going to jail. Fuck you guys, they said. And we go, really? Rock and fucking roll, motherfuckers. And so we we got on stage. Our gear had been set up. They pulled the plug on us. Our drummer started doing a drum solo. And Toledo City Police stormed the stage with billy clubs and started beating, t- taking the drummer off his drums. They took Mary away. They were beating up our roadies. I was the only one in the band not arrested. And this all happened in front of 9,000 people. We got dragged off stage and uh, the judge charged him with felony charges inciting to riot, which ultimately was thrown out of court and they let us go. But it, it caused a lot of problems for us because the booking agency that booked Bob Seger, MC5, Stooges, SRC, all the Brownsville Station, all those bands said, if the dogs are on the bill to any promoter, you won't get our bands from DMA, the Diversified Management Agency. So we were basically blackballed for being troublemakers after that. And that's why we moved to New York. Uh, So that was the first time we played there. (laughs) And then I think we were lucky enough to sneak into one more gig opening for Ted Nugent on his first solo album, Stranglehold at the Agora in Columbus. But, um, you know, but, you know, to answer your Cleveland punk rock kind of um, thing, you know, uh, friends with the Pagans, Mike Hudson, the lead singer in the Pagans. And mm-hmm. uh, and when he moved out here, uh, I helped kind of produce his last album uh, uh, and put a new band together with him out here and stuff like that. But uh yeah, they, you know, they're cool. And, and that whole Cleveland scene with Para Ubu and Rocket from the Crypt, I think you said. And, you know, it was a pretty intense scene there. Dead Boys, you know. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's and, you know, and that's like the uh, I don't like the, the closest thing, I think, sonically to what, you know, the dogs are doing at a certain point is like a band like the Dead Boys. And, and you know, it's just it's so it's so rock and roll you know like everything about it like when did you come up with the vocal like were you doing that vocal the whole time because it's one of the great voices ever wow nobody has ever said that Thank oh you. i love it so i like I like i don't know your delivery is just like it's like an attack to it and it's uh i just think you've got such a cool voice well you know without having a a a, a good vocal range you know, uh, I, I learned from Iggy that, you know, you better you better say what you mean or mean what you say. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and it's all about like great blues guys. You know, they were great at their phrasing. And, and I think if you don't write a lot of words and, and have the phrasing right, you can do that, you know. And uh, so, you know, I kind of kind of use my limited vocal range and tried to make them the best of it shall i say so 
And what about the guitar stuff? Like, how, when did that come in? Like, just sort of like the the kind of like frantic guitar stuff. Like, like uh, you know, like it's just it is so proto of what everything would kind of become a few years later. You know, um, my early influences were like Pete Townsend. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, being in a trio with a lead singer. Pete was great at chordal type stuff, but his right hand, you know, the, the, those British guys are powerful right hands and, you know, the windmills and just powerful stab slash and burn kind of playing. And, um, and even Jeff Beck from when he was in the Yardbirds was kind of like, he was kind of like, you see some of that footage and blow up of the Yardbirds. And he was just like attacking his, telecaster right so yeah yeah uh, so that was the early bit of it and then you know uh you know fred sonic smith and wayne kramer mc5 just their whole approach and then on the other side of the coin was ron ashton you know um his whole his whole thing which was different than mc5 and, and it was in a cool way and then i think um and then even Ted Nugent, the Amboy Dukes days was like that massive amount of feedback he would get was a big influence on me. And then last but not least was James Williamson. The first time I heard raw power, uh, it was like, fuck me. That that was just like, that was a biting guitar. You know, the sound of the rhythms, his solos were just like very, very intense. So. I find like a lot of people um, from Detroit uh, that were around for the Stooges are, are, you know, more partial to the Ron Ashton stuff and kind of dismiss raw power. But you, like, I love that record obviously as well, but uh, so you're, you're a fan of that one too. Uh, yeah. Raw power was like, you know, uh, which, which really, if you talk punk, I mean, that was like, that was way more punk than, Stooges first two albums I think yeah and um you know because you know Iggy and 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 the Ashton brothers and Williamson were in London and you know the whole glitter thing was already happening there and um um you know I think in the dolls it already happened so I think that had an influence on it and it it just was aggressive you know Mm -hmm. I mean search and destroy that song is like that's there's not too many other songs that powerful i mean i know i mean there's a lot of great stuff out there but search and destroy is like what can you say it's like the holy grail right mm, absolutely what was when was the first time you saw the stooges you know i never did see the stooges back in the day um what? i never did they never came to lansing to my knowledge and so i never really did see them um uh, I finally did after, because of my j- day job that I do, you know, working artist relations at Black Star Amplification, when James Williamson rejoined Iggy after Ron Ashton had passed away and they, they went from the Stooges back then to Iggy and the Stooges, uh, this, you know, right before they got nominated in the Rock World Hall of Fame, I started working with James and, and got him to play Black Star which they, he took into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when he played and used all around the world. But when they came to L.A., I finally did see Iggy um, and and that version of the Stooges, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, you know, with Steve McKay before he had passed away. And 
unfortunately, Scotty Ashton didn't play that gig. I think he already was feeling a bit bit ill, you know. So yeah, yeah. they had another drummer and stuff. Um, but I had seen Iggy, um, the dogs. We had moved back to Michigan in the early '80s and changed our name, trying to get a record deal and you know get some girl singer and try to you know sound like the pretenders or whatever and um we opened for iggy solo like in 81 or 80 i think like in detroit and then another band i play with little caesar we opened for iggy when cold metal came out um steve jones was uh we knew him out here in la and you know he he wrote that with iggy and was in that band and stuff so he suggested to iggy that we would open for him so we did that but um unfortunately i never got to see the original stooges you know other than just great films on youtube and i guess you also when you guys arrive in la it's kind of after their last stand in los angeles right like because you're in new york when they're kind of like having those final days uh, they're in 70 yeah like early early 70s when they're doing that uh the whiskey shows right yeah that was 73 no we didn't move out here till 75 and we you know they lived in this place next to the laugh factory um uh and then ron ashton and dennis thompson put a band together the new order mm-hmm. and when we got to town we 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 actually played with the new order and um and everything but no uh i've heard uh some great stories about when they lived hollywood and a photographer heather harris that's done a lot of stuff over the last 30 years shooting the dogs and stuff shot all those iconic whiskey uh iggy and the stooges shows at the whiskey you know mm. all those famous ones you see mm-hmm. but um yeah it's kind of dark days for those guys because uh you know Tony DeFreeze, who managed David Bowie, like kind of left them out to kind of just, you know, without much support. I think when he brought them to Hollywood and just left them stranded here, I think is what it was like. Yeah, from the way it reads, it really seems like they were like kind of left out there to die as a band. And it, it, yeah. it it's kind of what happened. Yeah, no wonder uh, life in the fast lane got the best of them with that, with that you know, and you know, and it, it must have been, you know, just artistically, you know, pretty um, disappointing for them because they came up with such a great record and it was just ahead of its time. It's just like New York Dolls' first album didn't really, except for New York and L.A., didn't really connect except for people in the know, you know, and, and I mean, people were completely didn't know what to think about raw power and stuff, you know? So, yeah, no, absolutely. And it, and it, it's almost like them dying in LA like that kind of, you know, is, is what fertilizes the earth. So the LA punk scene can grow a couple years later. Like it really, you know, like Keith Morris was at those shows, like so many people that would wind up doing bands in the next wave were at those whiskey shows, you know, or at least claiming to be at those whiskey shows. You know, good old Keith, like uh, when when the dog started happening, he he was at a lot of our shows and, you know, Greg Jen from Black Flag and um, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because we were so Detroit influenced that they they liked us, you know, and thought we were okay. So, oh yeah, no. When Keith was on the show, he said that for him and Greg, you guys were the band, and that's like the real, you know, like they that was who they were seeing when Black Flag was forming was was the Dogs, and and he really puts you guys over as being like the big influence for them. Yeah, it was. You know, when we came to town here, it was it was early and. Um, there was really no scene, and luckily we had met uh, the band, uh, the motels that had came down from Berkeley, and then there was another band called the Pop, and they, you know, they were uh, from Boston and Chicago. They were very, very kind of like Mata Hoople, Raspberries, uh, kind of flavored, um, and so. Nobody could get a gig at the Starwood or the Whiskey because nobody had a major record deal. So um, we got the collect kind of a collective headspace called it Radio Free Hollywood and joined together like a gang of bands. And it was it was very much like the New York scene because the motels, you know, with Martha Davis in it, it was like it was like a dark, you know, a brunette blondie, but way darker, their original band, you know, and then the pop, like I said, were very poppy and, and then us with our Detroit roots, but we all just like the New York scene, talking heads, blondie, you know, uh, the shirts, the Ramones, they all dictators, they all sounded different, but they had the same, artistic headspace and television was there you know none of the bands really sounded alike but they all had the same mindset and that sort of like was the early days here with radio free hollywood and uh we ended up doing a show that got in billboard magazine and then starwood and the whiskey started booking shows and you know um rodney you know had been doing his show out here, Rodney Bingenheimer, and he played our single and the scene started happening, you know, and then the mask opened up, um, which was, you know, kind of the beginning of hardcore. Yeah. Really, you know, with, with weirdos and the skulls and the bags. And we actually only played there once. I mean, Brendan Mullen, who ran that place, was really cool. And we had a big we had a big PA system, so we'd make money renting it out. So we did sound there a lot, but, um, you know, by that, and that scene was really great because a lot of young SoCal kids, excuse my dogs barking. I, I understand. No, you might I hear my no cat screaming in the background too at certain points. So. <laughs> um, but, you know, that scene was cool. And uh, a, a lot of young kids that, never had played you know really put they were turned on by the idea of anarchy and you can be whoever you are you know you could be rich poor cool looking ugly skinny or fat it didn't matter it was an attitude and a lot of great bands came together with that mindset um unbeknownst to us we related to it you know i mean we grew up with anarchy and go, already going to jail standing up for playing rock and roll and um but the one thing that set us apart from the 
uh, emerging mass scene in LA, which was leading up to the hardcore scene that developed, was because when we grew up in Michigan and playing in the Midwest, when you're playing with bands like Bob Seger, Nugent, you know, MC5, those bands can fucking play, you know, <laughs> and they kick ass. And so, so I think we ended up getting caught into a weird cycle because, you know, if you played your instruments too good, you sounded too good and it wasn't punk. So a lot of the punks thought we were like journey or something and yeah. you know and it, it got really weird and then the classic rock people didn't like us but we could the dogs could open for van halen we got to be friends with van halen or when the ramones came out on several trips to la like in 76 77 we we could play with the ramones acdc's first american gig ever was at the whiskey for three nights we got asked to open those six shows two shows a night so we could we could bridge the gap between so-called punk rock and a band called acdc that people thought was a punk rock band but they sure in the hell's not a they're a punk rock band they you know they're like a, a rock and boogie band that kicked your ass right yeah yeah i mean what can you say about angus and, and you know bond scott and and here's a great story uh and i got the marquee a picture of the marquee with our name on it but at, we had we got asked to turn down the dogs because we were louder than acdc with our four stacks of marshals um and that was a real honor and bond scott came into the dressing room with a bottle of jack and offered me a drink I and mean, he was a gentleman and you know I got to swig some whiskey with him and um but eventually because we were kind of like not here or there the emerging punk rock scene didn't like us and it was almost like we were the enemy so uh we started losing gigs and you know started taking it personal like you know like you know, they it, it became an elitist attitude, and um, we ultimately just packed up and moved to London. But before we did that, I wrote the song "Slash Your Face" as sort of like a, uh, and people thought it was a, 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 you know, a thing against authority, and it and it was, and it was a, it was kind of written for any elitist. May it be like you know, like you know like Nazi type mentality of anybody thinking they're better than somebody else. And we were going to just slash your face, you know, strong like the Viet Cong. We searched to destroy any of that mentality of that superior thoughts of like whoever you may be, you know, we just really like were pissed off. And, and so we rewrote slash your face is really, it's just like, you know, you know, as a, as a as a retaliation to the punk rock scene, who thought we were like Journey, we like fuck off, you know. So it was like going punk against the punks, but no one really knew what what it was. And you know, we got a lot of press thinking, "Oh, the dogs, this is punk rock." But it was just, it was just that song was fueled by a lot of just anxiety, you know. And same with the other song, "Fed Up." Um, you know, uh, 
Have you seen those pictures of the dogs on stage with Sid Vicious looking at Mary Kay's base? You know, like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, I mean, that whole thing was um, Tony Sales that was in 10 Machine with Bowie. Yep. Uh, we were friends with him. He came in our dressing room, said, hey, the pistols are going to be here tonight because it was right before the Winterland show, their last date, mm-hmm. and said, Let's show them that LA's not lame and let's let's fuck them up, you know? And 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 so we go, yeah, okay. What do you mean? He goes, let me get on stage, and I guarantee that Sid will jump on stage and we won't let him sing. I won't. And I said, hmm, this is punk rock, definitely. And I said, so what do you want to do? He goes, Do you know I want to be your dog? And of course we knew that. And uh so we did our set halfway through. I called Tony on stage, introduced him. A couple dancers that used to hang out at the mask got on stage and started twitching around. And we started playing, I want to be your dog. And before you knew it, Sid got on stage with his Warner Brothers record security thug. And uh, and he starts looking at Mary's bass and wanted to take it away from her and play it. and. You know, she's a tough chick from the, from Detroit that used to steal cars and leave them on the side of the freeway. And she says, no fucking way you're going to play my bass. And he just, and Tony wouldn't let him sing. And we just kind of, the audience didn't know what to think, what had happened, you know? And the dogs had give a big fuck you to the King Punk from London, you know? <laughs> and so that's, that's pretty punk rock, you know, but it's so funny because we didn't get any press from it that that happened. The dogs were, have always been kind of like underground and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the elitist press, uh, LA times used to write about us, but you know, a lot of the, you know, fanzine stuff sometimes just thought, I don't know, you know, we never le- were good at kissing ass. That's maybe why we never got a major record deal. You know, so I don't know, but it's okay. Uh, I, you know, it's it's one of the great tragedies because, you know, you brought up ACDC. If you guys were from Australia, it would be a totally different story. Like, you look at Birdman and the Saints, and they don't have, you know, you got years on those bands. You know, like, it, it's ACDC is the only band that's, you know, like, like it, it just feels like that's a country that understands this kind of rock and roll a little bit more. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um We'd love to play down under. We actually um, have distribution down there now because we've signed a deal with this punk label from San Francisco that works with Golden Robot Records in Australia. And um, we just released a single like right before the election here in the States called Welcome to the Revolution. Um, And then we have a new single coming out March 6th but our stuff's starting to get down there. We're actually getting airplay in Melbourne now on this FM station down there that plays like Amel and the Sniffers and Mm -hmm. the Ramones and ACDC. And, you know, we're in good company down there. So we'd love to go down there at some point, you know? Oh, it's so weird. Like being in Australia, like turning on the TV and they're playing like saints videos or, you know, the Australian X videos or like, just like all these like, cool rock and roll punk things and you're and it's just on tv yeah yeah i mean it's funny it's funny when like you know dogs got to play only once in toronto and we went there in 2009 and did the uh north by northeast 
festival mm -hmm. and we, we played the bovine sex club i think it was called yes uh, yep. <laughs> and you know what it, it was just like we were so jazzed just to play canada you know and um it's so so amazing because growing up in mid michigan detroit area we never had the opportunity to go across the border and play until it wasn't until 2009 and you know, it was like, it was a fantastic show. And, you know, Toronto, we just, we just loved it. You know, it just, I can't imagine uh, what it would be like um, to do more cities there. I, I've been to Montreal with my Black Star job. And then I did live in Vancouver for three months in 1989 with Little Caesar when we were recording with Bob Rock you know, and stuff. So, but, and, and, you know, totally learned about, you know, the whole Vancouver punk rock scene and all that. And I've got, I've got a really good friend um, from um, Winnipeg via uh, Vancouver that lives in LA, um, Richard Duguay, but he's from that Canadian punk band personality crisis. Oh, an incredible band. Absolutely. Yeah, you should get him. Uh, uh, you should get him to go on there. But he, uh, yeah, he's he's really cool, and he's really kind of told me a lot about the whole Canadian scene. And he's playing. He's really writing some amazing stuff these days too. And I heard there's a reissue of of their album. I mean, some some big repackaging of their their first or second album's going on i think right now is what he told me so. yeah i think the first record's finally getting like a proper reissue because it only came out it only had that one pressing and it was once again like you know obviously a, an american label is a big deal but it was never put out on a canadian label or in canada in any sort of way so it's really hard to find up here like it's almost impossible to find up here uh so finally yeah. it's going to get you know proper distribution because they're like you know much in the same way they're a band that i think doesn't get the attention they deserve in sort of the music history in Canada because they are such a fantastic band. There's a great book about them too. Really? Um, yeah. I didn't know that, but I know, I know about a year ago they did um, a couple shows. I know at least one in Winnipeg, but I think they did two or three sold out shows. It was just really amazing. And I think that's helped cultivate the continuing kind of buzz uh it is it's so amazing like you know it's like so many years after the fact but you know i mean it, you know it, it's just the way it kind of goes i mean we've given up on you know like you know you know what what maybe we deserve or whatever we just like just just keep doing what we do and um you know, we we do want to get to Europe again. I mean, luckily we did go to England in '78 and Ireland and stuff like that. And then luckily we got to go to Tokyo in 2007 and 2013 on uh, to back up the Dogs tribute albums that came out there. And and uh, going to Japan was completely insane in a good way you know mm -hmm. so. well you've got like that's i think that goes to the power of the the songs you did you know and the power of the band it's like here's this band with you know a few singles with you know self-released in 
in one case and and on a label that didn't really have distribution otherwise like no these things were non-existence pretty much and yet it's had influence all around the world like from japan to canada to europe to you know like it's it you know it's really is a testament to the power of the stuff you guys were doing thank god for bootleggers yeah i i really the, the kill by death and also that weird desperate compilation that um the, that rhino did in the early 90s i think that's that's where i yeah. first heard you guys okay yeah 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 we had uh we had younger point of view on that i think yeah, yeah that was that was cool because that kind of kind of kind of brought it um you know, out to a lot of people and, and, um, yeah, that rhino thing was really cool. And, um, but it was, it wasn't until like, God, like the late eighties, like maybe 87, 88, that, uh, I started getting fan mail from Sweden and, and these young fans were saying how, how slash your face meant something to him. And we had all these, they were saying there's huge amount of fans in Sweden. And, and that's when I learned about killed by death. I didn't really even know that it had happened. And I found out through some, the Swedish fans. Um, and then we started really realizing that, um, you know, that out after all these years that, that killed by death, really was a, a great thing that uh you know saved our career basically i felt you know and made us made us really damien value who we were because we lost sight of you know bands when they don't succeed or or hit rough times um it's hard to keep believing that the dream is real and we gave up on it and i thank god for the bootleggers and the fans because we realized that what we were doing was okay and and we needed to like not be ashamed of it because we kind of like thought we failed you know i mean to tell you the truth and um so luckily uh through the fans you know discovering who we were we kind of discovered who we who we were ourselves again and um put it back together and, and you know lee joseph at dionysus records called me and wanted to do the compilation the fed up compilation and that was uh that was a huge thing for us and um that that really started the momentum for the last 20 years i, I would say and then um and then through that, uh, Mario Escovito from, uh, from the, you know, the Escovito family, like Javier from the Zeros. Yep. One of the most important All, families in, in, in like music. It's like and exactly. everyone's connected somehow through this family of, you know, amazing drummers and musicians. Yeah. And Alejandro being in the nuns and yeah. rank and file. Uh, Mario contacted me and wanted to start managing and booking the dogs. And he booked this 2009 at South by Southwest. Alejandro had helped him bring us there. And we played with um, uh, the, well, uh, we didn't play with the Dragons, but we played with a few other bands. And then the second time Mario brought us there, we played with Jesse Mallon from New York and stuff. But having Mario's credibility of 
that musical family that's so respected really brought some respect to us finally after like you know 40 fucking years and it was a huge thing and um and he got us um he got burger records to do a reissue cassette version of fed up and you know and and it's like it's cool and um so we we just um you know we get past this covid thing we're we're gonna you know go back out and you know um and um play some cities you know so don't don't be surprised if you don't see us in toronto what you know 2022 you know oh if i'm not on, like last time you guys played here i was on tour and it is a great regret that i didn't get to be at that show so i will definitely not make the same mistake even if i have to cancel a tour i'll definitely be on I, that. <laughs> I don't know i don't know about that but you i know. just need an excuse to cancel the tour really yeah. that's what it comes down to <laughs> yeah there you go there you go or we can play some shows together you know i'll be so. amazing that would be a dream and and i yeah we, uh, my whole band because like you're saying that kill by death compilation it, they were an amazing tool of music discovery they're like the pebbles of punk rock like they were giving people a chance to kind of look at all these other bands that are on the same level as these huge bands, but you know, because of poor distribution, because of timing, just didn't get to that level of like, you know, these, these like the Ramones and the, the damned and et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, luckily for us, you know, we, we got to grow up around the Detroit scene mm -hmm. and then luckily for us we were crazy enough to go to new york on a whim and got exposed to you know playing meeting kiss and playing with them and the dictators and television and then um going back to detroit going down to florida you know in 75 and our drummer quit because we were getting fired city after city for playing too loud and fast you know just disco was was a big hit in 75 and then mary and i and our road crew hit hollywood and then ron finally came back out here with us and then we did the la scene at the early you know early days of the punk rock scene and um and then went to london and when we went to london in 78 we we did a Jimi hendrix thing we sold everything and moved to London because we had backing and they said, come here and live in England. You guys are going to happen. And then that's when we put slash your face up because we needed a record. So we put it out on our own label, went to London, mind you, three weeks after we got there, the money guy, the backer pulled out and things got pretty desperate after, you know, yeah. uh, and we ended up, uh, the gigs were great. I mean, the first gig we did up in York, it was like punkers pogoing and spitting with other young guys in denim jackets with buttons on it, head banging. And so <laughs> it was a really interesting, it was, it was pre, it was just beginning Iron Maiden was starting to happen and, you know, pistols were probably, um, already broken they were definitely broken up and and yeah. the whole punk scene was you know so it was evolving but uh we were lucky to get there and, and, and experience that and stuff so and then you know we're, we're always get to get 
to a scene before it happens and kind of soak it up. So it's been a, it's been really great that we've had these opportunities, you know, to. So, sorry, Jimmy, cut you off there. Sorry about that. Oh no, that's okay. I was going to say, did you? So did you bring most of the copies of Slasher Face to England with you? Yeah, I think we mailed some uh, there. There was only a thousand copies uh, printed. And um, this really great photographer from LA, LA David Tipp, uh, and his brother Steve and their twins, they actually helped back uh, the, the, you know, expenses for doing that EP mm -hmm. single. And um, I think I got, I got one original copy unplayed left, but, you know, they ended up going for quite a lot of money after, after decades and stuff, but um, yeah, they're gone. You know, we've did, um, I did a reissue with almost ready records in New York and they did two repressings of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then Dionysus had did one limited repressing of it. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it, it's amazing how far we, we got on slash your face it, you know, and um you know, still love playing that song. Uh, and um, it, it was really influenced by an L.A. band pre the Skulls, Mark Moreland and Bruce Moreland, um, that ended up doing the Skulls, which ended up doing um, Wall of Voodoo. Um, their first band, Sky People, was like, David Bowie meets the Scorpions meets punk rock. And Whoa. yeah, yeah. That band was scary. Great. I mean, it, they were just amazing. Did they yeah, record? I've never heard that name before. Um, I don't think so. I mean, they broke up before it really went anywhere, but it, they were a huge influence in that whole middle section of Slash Your Face that goes into seven, eight time. Mm -hmm. was, was totally like they would do weird stuff like that. And they were a big influence on that song, you know, so. I, that's the other thing I want to talk to you about is like, there's this other scene, like, you know, obviously you, you mentioned that mask scene that becomes kind of taken up as the LA quote unquote punk scene, but there's also, you know, all those bands that are on that, that Rhino records comp that you were on, you know, like the, uh, the Berlin brats and, and the motels you mentioned and Vom. like, it feels like there was like another kind of punk scene happening just before it almost. It was. I mean, it was the, the that Radio Free Hollywood scene. I mean, the Berlin Brats used to rehearse at uh, our our studio that we had our where we lived uh, between Hollywood and Sunset on Gower High Time Studios for two fifty an hour you, with a PA. You could load your gear in, and so we met so many bands there. But um, yeah, Berlin Brats were really cool, and Rick Wilder, who ended up having his own band, the Mamos in the mass days. And yeah, yeah. He, he was in the dogs uh, for about two weeks. We thought we needed to get a singer and, and Rick was kind of like a Mick Jagger, David Johansson kind of guy. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I thought it'd be cool if he fronted us, but Mary used to tease him and would always hit him in his arm and he quit the band because he tired of Mary beating him up. You know, <laughs> but god bless him you know 
Was Zola was Zola X still a band when you guys got to LA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were playing the Starwood, you know, because we would play the Starwood and the whiskey, but Zolar X, they were they were happening before we had moved to town. They were kind of into that whole Rodney's English disco mm-hmm. uh scene like in 73, 74. But yeah, they would do they wouldn't play too much, but they they were definitely around. And um, that Starwood scene was really good. I mean, we'd play there with Van Halen. Our first show in Hollywood was at the Starwood opening for Quiet Riot with Randy Rhodes and Van Halen headlining. And, um, you know, that was like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. That's when I realized I looked at Eddie and I just went, I don't have the dexterity to do that. And I, um, I really don't want to. And, you know, I, I started thinking maybe I should just learn how to write songs and stuff, but they, you know, they, they ended up being friends with us and we played with them a lot. And they, uh, David Roth, David Lee Roth, uh, helped us, uh, get with their manager that got them signed Milton Burrow's son, Marshall Burrow. And that's how we got to play the ACDC show and stuff like that. So, yeah, those were very interesting days uh, in LA back in uh, the whole '75 onward. You know, it's a lot. It was just really, really uh, a vibrant scene. Yeah, like, I, and I guess that's the thing that you know is also kind of happening at the same time as hardcore is emerging. You also have kind of coming out of the the earlier punk stuff or like kind of an offshoot. Weirdly, is that you know the Sunset Strip glam stuff yeah 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 the whole oc punk rock scene and um really started getting pretty big that's when we had moved out of town we you know after we came back from england and was here for about barely a year and we decided to go back to michigan and just kind of take a take a breather you know and and kind kind of sort things out and you know like we got to play with Johnny Thunder's Wayne Kramer's band Gang War and East Lansing. And, you know, that's when the whole kind of, what was that? That was, uh, it was like 80, 81, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, that was interesting playing with Johnny Thunder's in. And uh, yeah, a lot of gigs, a lot of stories, my friend. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, and I've kept you for a long time and honestly, Lauren, I could talk to you forever. I have so many more questions to punish you with. Would you come back at some point and do a part two? You know what, Damien, if you, if you want me to, I would love to. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah. You asked some really cool things and um, yeah. Hell yes. Anytime. You know, well, I think that's the thing about your band is I think it's, it's just to, people like simple things that are easy to understand and like to try and tell people that there's a band that played with Van Halen, ACDC, the MC five, like the, all the, like the early LA punk bands, the New York bands before they were even the New York bands, like you, you like your band, there's gotta be a movie or a book because it's just like, you tell the story of underground rock and roll in America after the sixties, like the dogs are that story as you're kind of moving around to all these different places you know, just before these scenes kind of happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've been talking to the, these two brothers, the speed brothers, Jeff and Chris, I I think Chris. Yeah. Um, 
and they do a lot of B horror movie kind of uh, stuff, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but they've approached me. We had a meeting two years ago. They want to do the dogs documentary movie. Um, you know, it, those things take a long time to happen, but uh, yeah, I, or a book, but yeah, they, yeah. you know, who knows? Uh, you know, I, I find it interesting. I'm just glad that, um, I'm just glad that, you know, we're still here because of so many of our peers, all of, like Sylvain, Sylvain the other day dying, and so many of our peers have passed away that um, we do not take it for granted, you know, and, and uh, just, you know, hope that, you know, like John Lee Hooker or Muddy Waters, those cats did it in their eight till they in their eighties, you know, and and that's what we're going to do because what else? We love to do it. It ain't about the money. It's an endowment for the fucking arts, and it's just something, an obsession you just have to do because that's what you do, you know. So, uh, before I let you go, though, one thing I we haven't really talked about, and if it's okay, can I? Do you, do you have time for like one more question? Oh, totally. Okay. Uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet that I've always kind of wondered about is like you arrive in New York. It's like the first time you're there, what you said, 73. Yeah. The fall then, of 73, I think. And then you're back there in 74. And that's like, well, it's before everything gets going, you know, like we're, we're the Ramones. The Ramones don't even start practicing till the end of 74. Yeah. I started seeing them at the Coventry in Long Island city that like when we'd play with the dictators, I, I saw Joey and Dee Dee and I'm just going, who are these guys? You know, they look <laughs> kind of lanky and, and uh, skinny and just with, with, you know, black jeans and leather jackets. And, and I, and I noticed them, but yeah, it was, it was still pretty early, you know, and, but that scene was very healthy. Yeah. Next on round two, I'll tell you, the day we got into New York and met Kiss at that famous show that their manager signed them at. There's an ironic story how we met Kiss and stuff. So uh, fun. And then I got to re-meet meet Kiss when Little Caesar went on tour with him in 1990. So uh, got to reapproach my relationship with them like 25 <laughs> years later or something. So I'm sure they were just the exact same people. <laughs> What's that? I'm sure they were the exact same people. It hadn't changed them at all, the experience. Uh, except they were just owned about 20 shopping centers, million <laughs> exactly. shopping malls in, in 1990 from 1974, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're still spending that. They're still spending 80s money today, you know? Yeah, so. Exactly, exactly. One more tourist and we're quitting, right, right. <laughs> well, you know, it ain't about the money to those guys and, 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 and neither is the, for the rolling stones or any band everybody just they get their yayas out going on stage and you know i think it gets past the thing of money maybe some guys some bands for the money but i you know i think after a while you just enjoy doing what you love to do so but. yeah like it must just become you know for those guys especially it's just like it's like what would you do if you weren't doing it you know like it just seems like it just you have to be on cycle for an album or, or ready for a tour at a certain point yeah yeah exactly so well anytime uh, you want to come back here lauren and talk about this stuff because we haven't talked about the attack we didn't we, we haven't talked about we we haven't scratched any of this other stuff that i off my list so please know you're always welcome on this show well let me know and you know, just drop me a uh, 
email or whatever and uh be i'd be honored to come back and go round two Thank you, Lauren, for coming on the show. And did I lie or did I lie? Holy, what a story. Lauren will be back for a part two because uh, God only knows how many more names we'll dig up. That is incredible. What a story. That is the band. That is America's rock and roll band, everyone. That is truly America's rock and roll band. Connecting Detroit Rock City to New York Punk to L.A. Hardcore to, oh my gosh, what a... Okay, I'm I'm fired up now. I'm fired up now. This is just the kickoff of Detroit Week. Coming up next, Dave Buick will be on the show of Third Man Records, of Italy Records, of the band The Go, and we will get into we get into a lot of stuff. Record collecting, we get into to you know garage rock. It's mainly looking at Detroit garage rock and and how that fits into this whole thing. And then coming up at the end of the weekend is Jeff G from the band Cold as Life looking at straight up Detroit hardcore. You know, I think between all these episodes, you're going to get a really cool view of how amazing the punk that came out of that city is, you know, still is and, and has been the whole way through. Anyway, we could, we talk about that all coming up in, uh, the, well, I guess hours now. It's going to be all over the course of this whole weekend. It's Detroit weekend. Detroit week. But it's a weekend here at Turned Out of Punk. All right, that's it for the show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids, and we need to help trans people protect themselves. Uh, we also need to stop hate and violence towards Asian communities. And we also need to support uh, uh, people that work as sex workers and, and you know legalize sex work and legitimize and and not that it's not legitimate already but i mean like practically legitimize and and accept and normalize sex work and yeah this, go out there get yourself informed read uh you know volunteer time volunteer money if you if if causes present themselves just all of this is just to say we need to smash fascism like these aren't political issues these are just like human rights issues you know, there's all other political issues we can talk about after this stuff, but these are just like kind of basic fundamentals where everyone kind of needs to be on an equal playing field and feel safe before we can kind of move on to other things. Uh, do something creative for yourself. Draw a picture. Uh, start a fanzine. Start a podcast. Start a band. Just just do something. You don't even have to put yourself out into the world. Just do something. You know, just kind of get yourself out of your head. And just, you know, because I've been there and, you know, it can help. It, it doesn't always help, but it can help, you know. Speaking of which, meditating. Um, I don't mean to sound like a, every other cliched person out there. Uh, I didn't believe in it at all. I'm, like, really old. I look back on different times of my life now and I'm like, man, if, if I had meditated, I think I would have gone through that differently than I did. So try it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? It just doesn't work. And then, you know, you know, worse off than you are now. Tried a few times, though. It took me like dozens of times before it clicked. So <laughs> try it a few times. And then if it doesn't work, give up on it. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they're looking for those organs, you're not going to need them. And someone else might, you know, donate blood if you can. Wear a mask. Wear a mask. We're almost through this, you know. 
Hopefully. I say that. You know, I don't know. But I, I'm hoping we are. Definitely a lot of hope that we are. And that's it. Uh, I'll see you on the next episode. Stay safe. Love you. Bye.